My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 105, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Samuel 21 to 23, Psalm 52 and 142. 1 Samuel 21. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual, whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doag the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul had slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took those words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madman that I have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah. With all his officials standing at his side, he said to them, 
Listen, men of Benjamin, with the son of Jesse, give all of you fields and vineyards. Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me, as he does today. But Doag, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions in the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and all the men of his family, who were the priests of Atnob, and they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, give him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lie in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servants know nothing at all about this whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doag, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doag, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, That day, when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kalia and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines, and save Kalia. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kalia against the Philistines' forces? Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kalia, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hands. So David and his men went to Kalia, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kalia. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Kalea. Saul was told that David had gone to Kalea, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Kalea to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod, David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant, has heard definitely that Saul's plan to come to Kalia and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kalia surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again, David asked, Will the citizens of Kalia surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Clea and kept moving from place to place. 
When Saul was told that David had escaped from Clea, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. Then Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekilah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you if he is in the area. I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the Arabah south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalayakoth. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En-Gadi. Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You are a disgrace in the eyes of God. You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It is like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see you and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here, now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people, and I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Psalm 142, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watches over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Marty Solomon describes how this part of scripture can feel like a swirl, a bit dizzying and unsure of where we are, what it means, and where we're going. 
It may be because it's a whole bunch of short stories, and sometimes they feel like they are disconnected or there are gaps, and that much of the king's behavior is often disobedient or pseudo-faithful at best, and the meaning is unclear. There was a gesture or action that seemed to follow God's will or plan, and there are also questions about the how or the method or the motive of the action. Also, Brent Billings and Marty Solomon drew my attention to the fact that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are one set of records regarding a time period, and First and Second Chronicles is another set of records regarding the same time period. While biblical scholars debate the when, the who, and the why of these books, some say these may have been the very first books of, written of the Old Testament. And these records would have been from the prophets. And Marty Solomon describes Samuel and Kings as more of a headline account of important perspectives and events in Israel's history. Marty Solomon describes how the way these authors wrote history was not the same way we focus on descriptive accounts that accurately reflect details on a timeline. The focus was on the prophets telling the story in a way that stirs and moves people like a mouthpiece of God for the people of the current day to receive an important message, not for the future to understand the details of history and the way we think about historical accounts. Also note that the Protestant Bible rearranged the books of the Bible, perhaps based on genre, whereas the Jewish historian arrangement where the Old Testament would have ended, does end, with the Chronicles, which are hopeful and a promise of God's restoration. And ours ends with Malachi, which ends in a curse. So that's interesting. The Chronicles, first and second, are an account of the kings as we're reading in first and second Samuel, but it's different. It's from more of Judah's specifically that perspective instead of Israel in the larger sense. And it's more like a documentary than headlines in its style, according to Marty Solomon. Okay, so in keeping with the theme of the podcast, I also want to zoom out for a minute to the larger narrative going on in the Bible, which is one connected story, one in which we're still living and it's still unfolding today. And Dr. Tim Mackey offers a great short series to describe these major themes, which I think connect to what we're reading today, particularly as it relates to David and his forming into this important leader. In Genesis 1, God created two dominions, heaven and earth, and within earth, three realms, what is up there or the sky, the land, and the sea. While he created creatures to be within each domain and realm, he created humans in Genesis 1 verse 26 to 28 to be image bearers, which I read more like agents, where God gave a portion of his power and authority as representative managers for a purpose, which we'll learn more about in Genesis 2. Dr. Carmen Imes has a great book that just came out on God being God's image. And then next in Genesis 2, we learn about leadership and bearing God's name. So more like brand ambassadorship. And Dr. Carmen Imes also has an incredible book about bearing God's name. God appointed a man and a woman in Genesis 2, which Dr. Mackey describes as royal priests or the first royal priesthood to be God's representative leaders. So for me, there's a difference between Genesis 1, where God gave all humans agency, 
a portion of his power and authority, and Genesis 2, where God is appointing or calling ambassadors, leaders to be his representatives in the world, to become, to be kingdom of priests. It was from the Garden of Eden, a place where heaven and earth touched and God had a close relationship with special responsibilities like moral accountability, being a blessing to others, and special benefits like eternal life with him for this purpose. Dr. Mackey describes this whole scenario, Genesis 1 and 2, as God's blessing. For me, the point between Genesis 1 and 2 is for us to yield our God-given portion of power and authority that he gave to us back to him. As Jonathan said in this story, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 17, when he comes to David's aid and he says, Do not be afraid, for my father Saul will never lay a hand on you, and you will be the king over Israel, and I will be your second in command. Even my father Saul knows this is true. I think of Saul as the adversary in the story, obviously. And I just love that, you know, King David, I think, is representative of of God himself. Jesus later in the story. And Jonathan is representing humans, us, and what we're being called to do. So if we choose Jesus as our king, we yield to to use our God-given power and authority to represent him in this world and to be his second. Beth Moore gave a talk I'll never forget where she said our generation may have accidentally set the Bible aside in an attempt to become more like Jesus. And somehow this pseudo truth will be believable enough that if we set aside God's word, the truth for love's sake, somehow that's what we need to do. Somehow, though, we rise or fall based on our willingness to make this exchange. Basically, a conflict was created between learning and living God's word in the world. We created a tension between two things that I think is artificial. And these inadvertently created our own ideas of what love is, of what truth actually means. These things cannot and should not be disconnected because we cannot know truth or love without knowing the God of the Bible. We somehow decide that following Jesus means not reading God's word. And don't get me wrong, the Bible is hard, hard, hard to read and understand in one connected story. But there is there are also so many resources now becoming available that there is this incredible opportunity to both learn about truth and love and take that into our worlds, our lives, right where we are, and to be on this ever-growing journey and process of maturing. After Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that the man and the woman morally defected from their representative leadership roles as priests, but God makes a promise and appoints Abraham and his family into the rescue mission later in the story to have the blessing, to be a blessing. We want the blessing. We can't take it. We receive it as a gift, and the purpose is to bless all of God's people in creation. God wants his people to become a kingdom of priests. To me, there is more sense of ownership, I think, and responsibility in thinking of ourselves as being and becoming a kingdom of priests that follow Jesus. Yes, of course, I think we are to follow Jesus. But sometimes I think there seems to be less ownership and responsibility to God and others and creation in the phrasing of following Jesus. But maybe that's just me. They should mean the same thing, right? To follow Jesus is to become a kingdom of priests. So we had Genesis 1 and 2 and the failure of the first priesthood. Then we had Israel's priesthood who also became completely corrupt. Remember the end of Joshua. 
Gross. Then Israel calls for a king. We had hints of a priest-king in the story of Melchizedek in Genesis. We had hints with Abraham and Moses and now King David. And their sometimes willingness to sacrifice, to surrender as a substitute for the sins of God's people. Yet God provided another way. Yet we also know that King David will ultimately fail as well. And this pattern leads us to the story of Jesus, who we were introduced to when we did the messianic checkpoint with the Gospel of John, who is the one who can sacrificially atone for God's people, the one who is the priest king and the Messiah. Jesus claimed to be the royal priest king, and Jesus told the people to wait for God to give the people the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happened. The Spirit of God came over his people and their bodies became the temples. Remember when we talked about the tabernacle and then in the kingdom of Israel, we're going to talk about these cities and temples. The temple, the body, is an extension we are collectively of the body of Jesus Christ to represent him, putting God on display, helping others navigate to Jesus for atonement interceding for others in prayer and blessing, and to be prodigally generous to those in need. To be a living sacrifice, a living act of surrender. This is the royal priesthood, Jesus-style, as Dr. Mackey calls it, a new humanity working in and towards God's restoration and redemption mission to reconnect heaven and earth. In the final pages of the Bible, there's a story of a reunited heaven and earth, serving as priests with God forever and ever. Thank you, Bible Project, for making such a beautiful, connected, short set of visual stories regarding the central theme from the Old Testament and Genesis and 1 Peter, throughout the whole Torah, and then into the New Testament. We really get a sense of the warfare of the heart in this story, the community of life when we choose to be God's representatives. We will have enemies. We will have friends. We will have those we help and those that help us. Yet we have faith that God is the architect of victory. And I love how David so frequently in this story, when he had questions about strategy and what next, would go to God. And sometimes it means that we stand against, and other times it means we retreat. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.